This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Eleni Soilemezi and colleagues entitled Tissue Doppler Imaging of the Diaphragm in Healthy Subjects and Critically Ill Patients. I'm joined today by lead author, Dr. Eleni Soilemezi, an intensivist at Papa Giorgio General Hospital at Thessaloniki, Greece. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Well, let's start by talking about the value of assessing respiratory muscle mechanics. Why should intensivists care about the diaphragm? Well, the diaphragm is, of course, the primary respiratory muscle. So it's, of course, of great interest to the intensivists. And we also have all this exciting new literature on the detrimental effects that the mechanical ventilation may pose on the diaphragm. So it is absolutely vital that we can monitor how the diaphragm is working, how it is contracting. And ultrasound is a very convenient means to do that because it's radiation-free, it's available by the bedside, and it was in that context of using ultrasound in our everyday clinical practice that we came up with the idea of using diaphragmatic TDI. You'd mentioned about using TDI or tissue Doppler ultrasound or tissue Doppler imaging. Uh, There's a lot of different ways of assessing diaphragmatic function using ultrasound. I've seen publications that look at uh, uh, diaphragmatic thickness as well as diaphragmatic excursion. What was the rationale for using tissue Doppler imaging? Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, You can use ultrasound to assess diaphragmatic excursion or displacement, and you're using the cardiac probe for that. And you can also use ultrasound in order to measure thickness and thickening ratio, and you're using the vascular probe for that. But TDI captures something different. It gives you the velocity, the speed of diaphragmatic tissue motion, which is a a characteristic of the diaphragmatic motion that we haven't been able to study widely so far. Uh, So when you're scanning the diaphragm using pulse wave TDI, the images that you acquire represent the velocity of diaphragmatic muscle motion over time. And this is important because until now, we didn't have any direct means to study the velocity of diaphragmatic tissue motion. We were relying on indirect methods to do that. And basically that was the transdiaphragmatic pressure waveforms. So uh, it was assumed that changes in pressure reflect changes in velocities. So people who wanted to study the velocity of diaphragmatic contraction and relaxation, they were gaining indirect information from the transdiaphragmatic pressure waveforms. But now TDI offers direct information. So it gives you a direct technique to study the uh, velocity of diaphragmatic tissue motion. And it's a a technique which is uh, much easier from a technical point of view compared to the insertion and use of transdiaphragmatic pressure catheters. And it's also a sonographic technique and sonography is widely available in the ICUs nowadays. Yeah, you know, I agree. I, I do a lot of um, imaging myself, and uh, I'm very familiar with tissue Doppler imaging from a cardiac uh, perspective. And one thing that made me interested about your, your manuscript here is that I thought this was something that could be potentially used with any cardiac image. Do you need any special settings, or is this just any ultrasound that has a cardiac uh, imaging package? No, no. The only thing that you need is the, is the cardiac probe. 
and you don't need any uh, dedicated software or nothing like this. Uh, however, you do need to make some changes because the settings on cardiac TDI are the appropriate for measuring the velocity of the moving heart, of the beating heart. And of course, the velocity of the moving heart is much higher. It's, it's much faster than the velocity of, of the moving diaphragm. So what you need to do is, first of all, you need to lower the scale rate down to five centimeters per second. Then uh, you need to open the, the sample volume, the region of interest, um, up to a maximum value of 28 or 29 millimeters, um, just to make sure that you follow the whole range of diaphragmatic tissue motion. Otherwise, you, you may lose the signal from time to time. And of course, since TDI is basically a Doppler technique, uh, you must always take care of the, um, of the Doppler plane alignment to the uh, recorded diaphragmatic tissue motion. Now, what we have done is that rather than making all these changes every time we want to study a new patient, we have actually saved all these changes um, as a preset program. So each time we want to study a new patient, we don't have to make all these changes again. So we just choose the program and, and the changes are already there. That's great to hear. And I would imagine as well, using a cardiac probe that has a little bit more penetration uh, than a vascular probe, we could probably image these patients a little bit better, even uh, in the, the obese patients with the with these same presets. Is that correct? Uh, well, scanning obese patients is, is always difficult in, in the RCUs, but uh, yes, however, yes, you can still get some some good quality images. Yes, with this with this uh, with these modifications. One one aspect of diaphragmatic ultrasound that I've um, struggled with when I read a lot of other papers on this is that. I think that there's a bit of technical difficulty in doing it, which you know you'd kind of alluded to, and there's also, uh, in some uh, cases, lack of inter-observer agreement. And so, I think that trying to measure diaphragmatic thickness is fairly challenging, and the excursion is very much dependent on the angle of the probe. Although tissue Doppler imaging also has that uh, uh, challenge as well. How do you think tissue Doppler imaging compares to those other assessments of diaphragmatic ultrasound? Uh, well, um, in my opinion, I, th I think that I think that um, the measurements which are the most difficult to perform are those of thickness and, and thickening ratio, because um, you they they require accurate assessment of structures and structural changes which are only of a few millimeters. Um, measuring displacement is is much easier, so and the reproducibility of the method is actually much better when you are measuring displacement or excursion. And I think I could compare the feasibility of the TDI technique with that of displacement or, or excursion, because as we said, there are a few uh, technical aspects that you must take care of, but it's just a few things that you need to take care of. And we have also tested the reproducibility of the method. Uh, in our study, all measurements were performed by two different examiners. And one was a person who was trained in diaphragmatic TDI Whereas the other person was a consultant cardiologist, which means that he was trained in cardiac TDI, but he was not experienced with diaphragmatic TDI. And still we found that the reproducibility of the measurements was actually quite good. So I think that that, that proves that it's a, it's a technique which is which quite feasible and quite easy to perform. I think that one of the things that was really fascinating about your study was that you included about 100 critically ill ventilated patients who were being evaluated for weaning but you also studied 20 healthy volunteers. And I thought that in hindsight, that turned out to be extremely useful because you found a lot of similarities between healthy volunteers and those who were successfully weaned off the ventilator. 
So what was your rationale? Why did you decide to include the volunteers when you, when you started off? Well, um, the, the reason we included healthy volunteers in our study was because, first of all, we wanted to identify what, what a normal TDI waveform pattern looks like. Okay? We, we had no idea what it looks like. And of course, you need to know um, the normal one in order to be able to identify the pathological one. And we also wanted to know what the range of values, what, what the normal values for these newly described TDI-derived parameters was. Um, there was a, 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 rec a, a recent study back in 2019, which assessed the reproducibility of the TDI method, of the diaphragmatic TDI method. And it, they also presented this uh, offers, they also presented um, normal values for TDI-derived parameters, peak contraction, peak relaxation, velocities. But that was a study that involved healthy neonates and not healthy adults. And, and as we said, we also wanted to study the reproducibility of the method. And um, as we've mentioned, it, it looks like uh, it's a method that it's, it's highly reproducible. So our results were actually quite good. Yes, I agree. I think that not only was it reproducible, but you have a very good idea of what normal is. And it, I thought it was remarkable that your healthy volunteers uh, correlated very well uh, with the uh, successfully weaned patients. You know, moving to a different uh, topic, you had mentioned earlier about some of the challenges with transdiaphragmatic pressure by measuring esophageal pressure in some patients using an invasive probe. How do you think that esophageal pressure monitoring compares to other methods like tissue Doppler imaging of the diaphragm? Well, um, the, the, the reason we attempted to, to correlate TDI to, to transdiaphragmatic pressure measurements uh, was because we, we didn't know what these new TDI-derived parameters meant from a physiological point of view. Uh, so what we did was that we simultaneously recorded TDI along with PDI, with terms diaphragmatic pressure, which is um, a well-known index of diaphragmatic contractility. And, and we came up with some interesting data. We found that peak contraction velocities correlate very well with peak transdiaphragmatic pressures. That means that they give us some indication of the intensity of diaphragmatic contraction. And we also found that the something else which was very interesting was that the fact that the diaphragmatic relaxation rate acquired with sonography, acquired with TDI, actually correlated very well with the diaphragmatic relaxation rate acquired from the use of transdiaphragmatic pressure catheters. Now, we think that this is very interesting because diaphragmatic relaxation rate is a parameter which is of special interest to the intensivists. Diaphragmatic relaxation in general is very important from a physiological point of view because the diaphragm needs to rapidly return to its initial resting length and position in order to effectively act as a pressure generator. And also a slowing in the diaphragmatic relaxation rate has been used in the past as a winning predictor. So for all these reasons, diaphragmatic relaxation rate was of great interest to the intensivists in the past, but because, as we said, it was a parameter that was acquired with the use of transdiaphragmatic pressure catheters, and this is a technique that has quite a few technical limitations. It was not widely used in, in everyday clinical practice. But this correlation that we found between the diaphragmatic relaxation rate acquired with sonography and the relaxation rate acquired with the use of transdiaphragmatic pressure catheters may allow re-entrance of this parameter of, of diaphragmatic relaxation rate 
in our everyday clinical practice. And, and we think that this is going to be very helpful for the intensivists. Yeah, I thought it was uh, very interesting how you assess not just contractility, but uh, also relaxation in the diaphragm. It did not occur to me how important that, uh, that component was. I also found it really interesting that patients who were more likely to fail weaning actually had faster diaphragmatic contraction velocities. Uh, and, and, you know, we think, for example, like in cardiology, that a higher tissue Doppler velocity would mean better contraction, stronger muscle function, but you found the opposite in the lung. So why, why do you suspect that is? Well, yes, indeed, we found that high contraction velocities, they were associated with higher transdiaphragmatic pressure, pressures, and that implies higher contractility. But they were also associated with higher diaphragmatic pressure time products. That implies higher respiratory work. So we suspect that these high contraction velocities, they do indicate, indeed, vigorous inspiratory efforts. But these efforts will... Um, will also result in an increase in the work of breathing and therefore may, may not be sustainable for a long time because weaning is, is basically an endurance task. So we indeed, we found that these high velocities were actually associated with adverse weaning outcomes. So they were associated with weaning failure. I think that's a very uh, succinct explanation for why that finding is present. I, I'm curious, how do you personally assess ventilation weaning at the bedside? Do you, do you ultrasound everyone or do you only apply this technique to certain patients where you, you have some equipoise? Uh, well, I, I think in the, in the majority of patients, the, the clinician can easily predict uh, whether a patient is going to be extubated successfully or not. It's just your clinical experience in most cases is actually enough. Uh, it is in a smaller, smaller number of patients, especially those who have many days on the ventilator, that um, you need winning predictors. Winning predictors can be helpful. And in those cases, then uh, you can use all the information that you can get. So you can use the information you get from ultrasound, like displacement or thickening ratio, or these new TDI-derived parameters, along with other information like the F to VT ratio and negative inspiratory force and, and so on. So you kind of, you co-evaluate all this inf information and all, all this data influence your decision whether to, to extubate a patient or not. I, th I think that's uh, very well said. We want to try to take in the uh, whole picture. Uh, I'm curious, when you do this uh, technique, when you, when you apply tissue Doppler imaging, clinically, what, what sort of numbers, I guess, uh, give you pause? Like what, what thresholds would you say, okay, at, at this contraction velocity, I start to get a bit concerned that this patient may not do well? Well, as, as, as um, we've already mentioned, uh, the higher contraction, the higher, uh, high numbers of contraction velocities and also of relaxation velocities uh, are actually associated with adverse weaning outcome. Uh, and also high values of um, diaphragmatic relaxation rate. These were uh, associated with, uh, with winning failure. It's like 1.5 centimeters per second or something like that. Do you start getting, or one, two, or? I think our values were, the mean values were, were roughly about one centimeter per second. That was the, the cutoff point, I think. Um, higher than, than one centimeter, then uh, the patients had higher chances of actually uh, not being weaned off from, from the ventilator. But it's not just the TDI, though. It's not just the TDI. You just you were measuring displacement as well. It was the clinical feeling of the of the doctor who was in charge. And, and you can't, as I said, you kind of co-assess all this information together before you decide to excavate a patient or not. 
Right. No, I, I completely agree. Even something as simple as the rapid shallow breathing index, you know, we, we don't rely on that as gospel. It's really fascinating that we've got a reproducible measure here that might offer a, a different dimension to assess the diaphragm. What can we expect in the future regarding the use of diaphragmatic tissue Doppler imaging? Well, um, that's, that's, that's very interesting because um, I, it's possible that it's still um, too early uh, to say what the clinical value of these newly described TDI-derived parameters will be. Um, the numbers look good, they look promising, and we have also looked at the rock curves for these new TDI-derived parameters, and it looks like it's possible that, that they can be used as winning predictors in the future, but still we need more data. We need a larger number of patients to confirm this data, and um, I think it will be interesting because it's possible that patients who fail weaning may actually have different TDI patterns depending on the reason they fail weaning. For example, a patient who, who fails weaning due to, to muscular weakness may have a different TDI pattern compared to someone who fails because of uh, high respiratory drive, for example. But however, we still find fascinating the fact that uh, we now have a direct means to study the velocity of diaphragmatic tissue motion. Because as we said, in the past, researchers and clinicians, they, they wanted to study the velocity of diaphragmatic contraction and relaxation. And they were relying on indirect methods, methods with technical limitations and so on. And so, on. so we think that TDI is going to prove a valuable tool, both for uh, research uh, but hopefully for clinical for 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 clinical implementation as well. Well, I think it's just absolutely inspiring how um, you've taken a you know technology that's existed for quite a while in the you know, cardiac field and have applied it to respiratory mechanics, and not just found something that's clinically useful, but also offers a very nice physiologic explanation for some of the findings that we see. So I, I think this is just absolutely great work. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. This concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to uh, thank our guest, Dr. Soilemesi, for an absolutely illuminating discussion on assessing diaphragmatic motion using ultrasound, as well as uh, some insight on ventilatory mechanics in general. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Soilemesi. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. This is Michael Lanspo for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you. Thank you.